we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. The Oswald has been shot. Paddock fired out of two adjoining rooms using a device similar to a hammer to smash the windows. Several uh, flying saucers there of extraterrestrial origin. Get Chris Graves. How dare you? Welcome to another Digging Chris Graves. I am that person. And uh, we have a very special uh, guest, uh, special to me, especially. Uh, I'm going to stop saying special. Uh, Mr. Chuck Ocelli of the Ocelli.com network. Um, he's my producer and very good friend and veteran researcher of the J John F. Kennedy assassination. And you referred to yourself for a long time as a, a certain moniker, right? Um, with the the blind JFK researcher thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of set you apart from uh, all these uh, professor types that, you know, kind of thumb their nose at everybody. Is that a fair uh, assessment? Yeah, a little bit of that and a little bit of, uh, you know, I showed up at these gatherings or to do work or whatever. And, and I'm the guy in the, uh, you know, the Black Sabbath or Iron Maiden or Motorhead T-shirt. Uh, you know, motorcycle boots and such. And these guys are, you know, showing up looking like your, uh, your average high school teacher. Uh, yeah. So that plus I had uh, pockets full of and bags sometimes full of like, you know, magnifying glasses and things to help me see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it kind of just happened uh, that I became the blind one. Because we used to do these little group phone calls uh, where, you know, there used to be party lines on landlines. So here we go, Grandpa, right? The party uh, lines, you're right. I remember that before chat rooms. Yeah. So, you know, 10 people on a phone call. And uh, so there was more than one guy named Chuck or Charles. And I became, well, you know, the blind one oh. when addressing. Because I'm the guy who had the magnifying glasses. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> and I'm legally blind, just for the record. Right. Okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Sorry, we uh, we're starting late, folks. Uh, I uh, once again, I, I got my foot stuck in my neighbor, so that's a story for another time. Uh, yeah. So anyway, oh, be a real fun story, depending on the neighbor, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Cooper, he uh, rest in peace. Um, anyway. Okay, so what actually right off the bat, you have a website and you've uh, you built up like a whole net a radio network uh, for the last decade or so, right? Or just about a decade? Well, you know, the network really has been a, like a five year long project. Uh, but the uh, the show I started in 2013 yeah. called the Kelly Effect, uh, and I was on other networks over the years. Uh, and eventually, I just wanted to do it myself and try and get. Uh, other people who wanted to broadcast, wanted to do a presentation. I wanted to give others a platform and empower them to get out information that's rare, uh, stuff that's atypical outside of the mainstream, if you will. So, uh, yeah, so I just had had people help me and learned how to do it myself. Uh, so nowadays we're an online radio station. 
uh, Ocelli.com is, you know, if you check your radio apps and things like that, you can find Ocelli.com radio on Apple radio and tune in and radio and all those things. Just you're like on, you're on BitChute and Odyssey and things like that too, right? Oh yeah. But the 24 seven radio station is available just, you know, playing like all the time, like it's right. a uh, virtual talk station. And then, yeah, we, we try to get out to every platform we can. Uh, and the podcasts, including yours, Get Mad with Chris Graves, is available uh, on every platform that pretty much allows us to have audio uh, podcasts, with the exception of YouTube. Uh, just so you know, because I got kicked off of there recently. So, <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, and that was unfortunate. That's uh, a lot of people are right. in the same boat, and right. I guess uh, it is what it is, unfortunately. But um, so with free speech, uh, you know, obviously your network, uh, like many others, um, it's one of the only, not many others, because a lot of them got, you know, canceled or whatever. But I'd say I, basically this is going to sound like really stupid, um, but free speech, like what, what does it mean to you? Well, you know, it's a dicey subject. Uh, I, I very much believe that anyone who has a business, a platform, uh, you know, a place of just existence that's under their control, whether it's your house or, for instance, I have a radio network, I can certainly decide what it is I think is acceptable uh, to be discussed there and things like that because it's a private situation. Uh, now, in a public forum, I think... Uh, you know, we, we have this standard of free speech in America. That's one thing. And I think there is uh, yet another thing about, you know, just a uh, uh, courtesy and allowing people to express themselves. But I got to say, you know, even though I'm fully for somebody, let's uh, let's take a crazy, for instance, you know what? I got no problem with somebody viewing, examining, being a fan of pornography. Uh, but I really don't want them to come into my home and start talking about it because I have an eight year old. Who doesn't need to hear about it? Uh, I, I apologize for that, uh, by the way. Ah, well, you know, look, we all make mistakes. Uh, obviously, I do. I produce your show. Oh, dun dun. dun. Okay, now we now we've each taken a shot at each other. Had fun. Look, I love you, man. I'm really glad and proud of everything you've been doing. So don't don't anybody uh, take that seriously. I'm just screwing with them. Uh, point is that there is the concept of free speech as it, you know, the government should not infringe upon your speech, but you personally, you don't want to hear about certain things. You don't want certain things discussed in your home, on your website, on something you own and control. You know what? That is your right. Turn the station. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and the thing is with YouTube kicking me off, I'm not mad. Like my free speech was infringed upon. I never understand that. I'm a little upset though that uh that it is acceptable to kick me off for things that really half the time it, it's not even relevant i'm not doing anybody any harm right. and you can change the video on youtube you're not you know uh required to watch or listen to anything on youtube people have choices yeah. you know so i don't know i i it's a dicey thing where you know, people talk about it all the time, like on this platform, my free speech was infringed upon and blah, blah. The government has no right to do it in a public place. I think there's a, a level of courtesy. One should, you know, simply uh, uh, control themselves right. about certain things. You know, not everything is fit for public consumption. But on the other hand, uh, you also I, I don't believe anybody has a right to shut anybody down. And especially if I have a space, 
on my website, on my forum, on my little whatever. Uh, you know, the challenges to even try and keep that up and going are, uh, are, are getting greater. And so it's a mixed subject. I don't feel as though my free speech was infringed upon by being kicked off of there. I think it was unfair yeah. because they have not equally applied the standards to a lot of people. Uh, and if you're in a certain position, you know, you can have exactly the same conversations that we had on different shows that got me in trouble on YouTube if you're one of these larger corporate entities, yep. you know, uh, so long as at the end of the day, you're still sponsored by Pfizer and you put a disclaimer on there, you're allowed to continue. You know, uh, if you're CNN and you've got a guy screaming uh, all kinds of obscenities and whatever, and they say it's necessary for the news, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're other privileged people, you might be able to say things that are almost hostile, uh, threatening in nature to other people and you get away with it. Uh, so as per usual, as is in daily life, uh, there, there is selective enforcement. It and comes down to money too, right? Well, and, and money too. Yeah. If I had the money, if I had the, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what to call it. If I had the privilege, it's more about the privilege than it is the money. Right. Uh, if you are in a privileged position, you get to walk away. You get to refuse subpoenas. You get to uh, not comply with the laws because you're in that privileged spot. Try it. If you're you or me and you find out exactly who's got a privilege and who doesn't, you know what I mean? Different set of rules for a uh, different class of people. Always, yeah. always. Yeah. So it's a mixed thing. It kind of sucked though, because it reduced, you know, uh, the ability to get out on Google and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a tough situation, but I, I'm not an absolutist with it where some people go, well, that's my free speech being infringed upon because they kicked me off of Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Facebook, to my mind, is not really the public. It's not a equal space where everybody has a right to it. Frankly, Facebook is a corporate entity, and uh, they have the right to refuse service to anybody. You know, the old signs that hung up in real brick-and-mortar places. Well, let me, well, let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of people bring it up now, and mm -hmm. I don't know where I stand on it, but where they use the claim that it, should be a public utilities thing. Now, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have a stance on that. Mm. No, you? and I, you know, I understand that. But again, I, I, I've got issues all across the board on that. Right. Is it a public utility? I think people already invest way too much time into these things anyway. No. And that, uh, you know, what they call social media, just like everything else in the world, it's not labeled uh, according to what it actually is. To me, it's the anti-social media, not social media. Uh, yeah. I know we all use it because we're all trying to reach out to people and inform them and give them options and show them rarefied information and reveal truths to them that are not going to be revealed by these corporate entities that are out there presenting information. So this is, you know, the general thing that we're all trying to do if you're in independent media or alt media, but the fact is you're using something that is the dirtiest of dirty corporate mechanisms. You're using the internet, which at all times is controlled and manipulated from jump. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's the tools that we have to use. We, we need some more innovation to find the next underground, to find the next real wild west. Cause at one time the internet was, it was totally uncontrolled. Yeah. Uh, but the 1990s. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but things have changed over time. So uh, I, I don't feel as though it's a public utility. 
Okay. It shouldn't be. Um, but, but at the same time, I also understand the argument where it's like, but the reality is this is where people are socializing, right. even though they're not really socializing, you know, uh, we, we could turn to something completely different online dating, right? Yeah. People call that dating where you get together and you're on a zoom call together. Uh, <laughs> yeah. people do this thing where they're selecting people by their picture, you know, swipe, right, swipe left. Yeah. I don't know which is which because I don't participate in this nonsense. But yeah. Yeah. a lot of people, this is the way they're living their lives. They're building relationships off of, did they decide to uh, pick the fake avatar looking picture that somebody <laughs> photoshopped to death to make themselves look good? Yeah. You know, or or the thing they're they're still using a picture from 20 years ago. You're making decisions about who it is you're even going to encounter based on that. And you you're know, telling me that Lois Griffin is not real. Cause I swipe yeah. right. I swipe right. So, well, you might be better off swiping right on Lois Griffin. Cause God help you when you actually get to see what's on the other end of, you know, the, uh, the, the app for dating. Cause uh, who knows, you know, and, and by the way, if they declared themselves a girl, they might be a girl and you might, uh, anyway, a whole other subject, right? Uh, yeah, no, I'm awake, but not woke. I gotcha. There you go. And you know what? I, I, I stress that uh, both people that are allegedly awake and allegedly woke are yeah. equally dangerous because most people in general are sleepwalkers, in my opinion. So they're in motion. Ooh, they're not quite fully right. asleep, but uh, doesn't mean that they're conscious or conscientious. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm in the, pro the very late process of uh, waking up. There you go. There we go. Well, Still aren't we all? There you go. <laughs> All right. So anyway, <clears throat> well, basically, I'd like to, uh, if we could, get into a subject that is very near and dear. Uh, is that the right words? Um, to your heart, basically. You've been researching the, the JFK assassination for a very long time. And what brought you to that? Like, what, if you're comfortable with it. Uh, what was your main driving force looking into this uh, tragedy? Combination of things. Um, you know, re realistically, I l listen. Let's let's go to the raw part of the interview, okay? Yeah. Uh, factually, my my father committed suicide when I was four years old, and he had been a veteran of the Vietnam War. And I've told this story many times. I'm not going to bore anybody with it. No, you know, for, there are. I know for a fact there are many people who are watching or listening that have not heard this story. So you're not boring anybody. Well, I'll give you the bullet points then. Okay. Uh, okay. You know, effectively, uh, the the man suffered brutally from uh, from what we would say is PTSD today. Yeah. Uh, you know, and did not receive proper treatment, and uh, eventually uh, decided to take his own life. He was having a very difficult time living with the things that he had done uh, as a soldier in Vietnam. Uh, and when I inquired about that to my government, um, they, uh, they told me that there was no such record of him even serving. And in fact, even threatened to prosecute me if, uh, if I sought to, uh, get funding to go to college, uh, when I was a, a later teen. So, uh, this, this definitely inspired a, a new intensity into me looking into this subject. Why? because I had understood that John F. Kennedy would not have carried out or prosecuted the war as it had been prosecuted. Right. It was unnecessarily lengthy. 
You had nearly 60,000 men that were dead as a result. Uh, you had more than a million men returned back to the world, society, America, who were mutilated in one way or another, either physically, uh, psychologically, or spiritually. Uh, and I feel as though this was a crime that was committed under false pretense and uh, was was ostensibly, you know, so we could uh, uh, protect democracy, so we could stop communism. The domino uh, effect. Yeah. You know, the, all of that, right? All of those lies uh, that, that it had nothing to do with any of it. Uh, and it also, I knew, even though this is much more uh, well-known today, I knew firsthand that part of the reason why we had heroin, uh, which was, you know, a, a plague upon many poor neighborhoods in the 1970s, uh, the reason why that plague was there uh, is it was, it was very much helped out by the Vietnam War in multiple ways. Um, so I felt as though there was a multi-tiered plan here, almost seemingly, that, that went into effect all based off of what happened with Vietnam and John F. Kennedy's murder, in my estimation, uh, as a teenager, was committed in order to make sure that that crime was committed. Um, now, I'm not saying that I'm uh, one of these people that thinks that John F. Kennedy was uh, the great progressive hero that was going to be, but he wasn't going to allow the Vietnam War to go on beyond 1965. Yeah. yeah. And that was something that I, I learned just by my interest, which really I picked up uh, initially when I was about nine years old and my third grade teacher uh, started telling us the, the story generally because it wasn't in our history books yeah. uh, because uh, even though it should have been by then, I'm in a poor school district. So the teacher herself gave the presentation. And when she got to the part about Lee Harvey Oswald was in police custody and died, uh, my questions came out. They were well, which cop killed him? Uh, you know, wait a minute. He didn't die because of the police and he was in police custody. A guy named Jack Ruby killed him. And that happened while he was cuffed to police officers. Yeah. Um, just being a kid from the streets, I knew that something was very wrong here. And on live television, by the way. Well, yeah. I mean, but, but I'm in, you know, I'm in school 15 years later. I'm in school in uh, the late 70s. So I didn't know about what was on TV or anything. This was a new subject to me. Right. Uh, so I started to pick it up all by myself. And then around the 25th anniversary in uh, 1988, there was a lot of media coverage. And uh, uh, what was it? Jack Anderson. Uh, the, men, the men who killed Kennedy. The men who killed Kennedy, I think, uh, uh, started. But that was, wasn't something that was really widely seen yet in the U.S. Right. Um, around that same time, uh, Vince Bugliosi had done a mock trial, uh, which uh, of Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, there were many TV shows like In Search Of and things like that uh, that just sort of got me thinking about it. So I started to dig for myself. I, I went and I sought out books and, uh, and things like that. And uh, lo and behold, a few years later, Oliver Stone made a film. Uh, so all of this sort of amped it up. And my beginning history as far as doing real serious actual research yes indeed that occurred before there was an internet um, you know because a lot of people think i do research i check links you know no uh there's a lot more to researching a subject than just surfing the web uh and and certainly i couldn't have surfed the web in 88 but i started there 
And uh, it just uh, snowballed. I mean, you know, bit by bit, I met people that were writing those books. I met people that were making those films. Um, I uh, added overall, to- overall, what would you think? What was your impression by these individuals when you would meet them? Well, you know, it, it was it was very mixed all over the place. But the, the overall thing that was important to me wasn't the individuals, the personalities, or their projects at all. Uh, to my mind, it was uh, a crusade. We could get to the truth. Yeah, we could uh, make it known, and uh, maybe somebody could be held accountable for the fact that again, uh, you know, tens of thousands of men dead, uh, a million Americans anyway. Fifty-eight, uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You're talking about fifty-eight thousand uh, uh, um, servicemen and over a million Vietnamese dead, right? No, no, no. I'm talking about a million American men returned here with PTSD or having oh, their yeah. limbs blown off or serious injuries that that led an entire generation in my estimation to have uh their fathers their uncles their grandfathers uh d- you know damaged beyond uh re- repair right okay and that led a generation down a very bad path in my estimation so that i mean if you want to talk about the vietnamese dead sure i was going to get there and and i would say a conservative estimate uh, the most conservative estimates are uh what two three four million yeah. Right. Uh, and, and look, body counts are what they are. It's not even about the body count. I just mean as human beings in general. Like yeah. It's, it's about the massive crime. This is a criminal right. thing that happened. And add in the fact that through the Golden Triangle, through all the things that we learned about later, is that we had cheap, cheap dope everywhere. I know it was only in the cities then. Well, a lot of these servicemen, they ended up being becoming addicted to some of the stuff that you were mentioning, like with their addicts, their addicts, uh, you know, and then a whole, like I said, you know, New York City, for instance, New York City, the first time that I got to run around in New York City on my own, I was a little too young to be doing it, but nonetheless, I did, was practically a war zone uh, in the late 70s. I mean, uh, under uh, the Mayor Abe Beam. Uh, you know, you, you didn't know who was going to kill you quicker. Uh, somebody who was, uh, you know, involved in drug deals or the cops. I mean, it was a wreck. Like the movie Taxi Driver, if anyone wants to go back, it, it's kind of a reflection of what was going on, right? Well, right. And I mean, you know, e- even during the time when, like, say, Bernhard Getz ends up shooting guys in the subway or whatever, yeah. if you were exposed to that, you weren't surprised. Yeah, and 19, I, 1985, Bernie Getz. Yep. Yeah. You weren't surprised because, I mean, bodies dropping on the street. You might have seen that on a daily basis, depending on what part of New York you were in. It was out of control. Right. Uh, really, really bad. And it was driven by the dope business. It was driven uh, by the violence associated with that money, uh, you know, during the time of stagflation. See, here's the thing is we go into a time right now where the economics are turning against everybody and lo and behold, we do still have, you know, everybody talks about the opioid crisis today. Well, you know, there was plenty of dope back then, too. Uh, it's just that, again, it didn't really spread to, you know, let's be honest, white America, uh, suburban America, uh, the polite neighborhoods. You know, they didn't have the pills yet to be able to drive it. So, oh, it's just those junkies in the city, uh, you know, like the scene from The Godfather. That's OK. We'll keep it among the dark people. And that wasn't just about people being black. I don't drive everything into race. I'm saying that when you're a poor person, you're irrelevant. You're a number at best. 
Uh, so it was okay. It was acceptable. Well, it's just those people in the city. Right. It's just those people. Uh, but once these things really went out of control, and again, we, we saw wave after wave. I mean, it was more appropriate a couple of years later for you to be talking about crack killing everybody because that all of a sudden flooded the streets, you know, magically. All of a sudden. Um, yeah. Which actually, actually, um, it's kind of related. I wanted to know, get your take on uh, the thing that really got me enraged when I learned about this, about Vietnam, about the corp the soldier corpses being used to funnel caskets of corpses it, there were uh, reports of both where they would put the heroin in uh, the soldier's casket or even the corpse themselves what do you know about that if anything about that well i mean look anybody can know about that today but i i knew about stuff like that back then that uh that there were uh, servicemen who didn't have to be checked through any sort of customs or anything that were hauling things back that were alive. Uh, I also knew that there was something going on, but I wasn't directly involved in it. Uh, we learned later, I mean, you can see a movie called American Gangster, which kind of lays it out, uh, that they were using the caskets, the, the plain metal caskets uh, from dead servicemen to, you know, smuggle it in. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that was just, that was one direct route though. You know, there were dozens of direct routes. Uh, Frank Lucas, you know, perfected a very simple system that, uh, that, that made him millions of dollars and made him effectively the godfather of Harlem for a while. But, you know, but he was just one guy. This was nationwide. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, there, there's a whole history to that. My personal knowledge about it though, is that it seemed like there was dope coming from everywhere. And I saw it come again with the cocaine later. Um, which is really interesting because when I interviewed uh, Ricky Ross, Freeway Ricky Ross, who was uh, quite well known for his uh, his uh, entrepreneurship when it comes to crack cocaine, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I talked to him about it off the air a little bit, and, and we we discussed how amazing it was that the opportunity and the chemistry practically landed in the laps of uh, you know just inner city kids, and I'm on one coast and he's on the other. And we saw it emerge at exactly the same time. Almost as if people, people were, almost as if people were, you know, giving them a master class and how to make this stuff. Almost like that, right? Yeah, I mean, pretty much like it was like, hey, come and get your pamphlet from the government. We have information from you, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it just magically, all those, all of a sudden, urban urban chemistry uh, advanced. Yeah, you know. Uh, so in Ollie North is taking midnight trips into, you know, Compton and things like that. <laughs> yeah, why, why not? Allegedly in Fawn Hall. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, anyway. Anyway. Well, anyway, going back to, uh, with the JFK assassination that basically propelled you into, uh, this kind of life. It's basically been a lifelong crusade to, to get to the truth of, uh, his murder. Right. Because of all, basically all the repercussions that we're still feeling to this day. Right. Well, that's the point of why I'm harping on this, because I feel as though on that day there was a very serious change in this country. And you know what? We might have not been in control before that as as we the people as we're supposed to be. But I think we lost something very significant and the powers that should not be uh, very seriously took hold that day and, uh, and and established a new order, if you will, going forward. The end of innocence, right? 
Well, you know, maybe not the end of innocence because I don't think this country was. Well, that's what people, a lot of people would coin that back then. Some people would. Some yeah. people would. And if you look at what happened, you know, in the years that followed, I mean, nearly any progressive or uh, not, forget the word progressive because it's got bad connotations. Anybody who wanted to seriously talk about the prospect of peace, yeah. the prospect of uh, elevating other human beings, uh, you know what? They caught bullets. Yep. Uh, you know, Dr. King, in one of my most favorite speeches of his, uh, said that, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase here badly, but excuse me for a moment, that because this, you know, nation uh, is so willing to spend money on on murder, it's so willing to spend money on weapons of war and things that destroy others, as opposed to using its resources and its power to uplift human beings. Uh, we are approaching spiritual death. Uh, and, and I think that that not only was he correct, but we've already gone there. And I believe we are actually in the pseudo zombie apocalypse now. Uh, you know, America and the, you know, the dream is certainly dead. Uh, and I don't mean Dr. King's dream. I mean, the, the, the idea of the American dream, the idea of upward mobility. It's over. And we're still in motion, so very much like a zombie. There's no brain behind it. It's just the 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 flesh in motion. But well, the, you know, the American dream, you have to be asleep to believe it, right? And the soul has left the building for the yeah. most part. You know, can we redeem ourselves? I'd love to see it. But this is the real heart of the reason why the JFK assassination matters in my mind. Okay. Uh, and and we we have only uh, continued to suffer the consequences. And the things that have stemmed from, you know, what, what, what do they always say? It's, it's from the root of the poison tree yeah. that the fruit is coming, right? Right. Uh, and, and here it is. So that's why it's important. And because of that, this is why, you know, this particular subject you wanted to talk about today yeah. is also important. Yes. Uh, because we've been deceived, obviously. We've been lied to, obviously. We've been misled, misdirected. And, uh, and and certainly cowed or, co you know, what do you call that? Herded, I guess, yeah. into a group think that has us arguing with each other a whole lot more than actually turning our anger and our efforts toward the people that are really on a daily basis doing us harm. Yeah. And why? Because of all the falsehoods, all the garbage, all the misdirection, all the loss of any sort of. Uh, ability to think in an objective manner to examine things properly to critically think yeah these things are all being discouraged and you know what you're supposed to do watch your tiktok videos for 60 seconds get your dopamine hit any way you can eat your food that isn't really food and shut the hell up that's what you're supposed to do oh and by the way pick a side because yeah. we're going to be two sides of something and you got to pick a side, red or blue, Trump or Biden. Uh, you know, do you Coke like the Pepsi. that's what it is? Coke, Coke or Pepsi. Pepsi? Why not? Sure. Burger King, McDonald's. Pick one, dude. It doesn't that, matter. That's the illusion of choice is the Coke and Pepsi thing. Right. Right. It's because at the part. end of the day, it's you not about who actually makes the choice on the menu. It's about who sets the menu. Yeah. So anyway, this is really both interests behind the scenes of the same thing is what I've noticed. Well, what I want, what always, I want, sorry, no, always, always, 
Always. Always. Yes, I, I don't pick a side, and that's not because I'm a puss or whatever. I've heard all kinds. Oh, you're, you're, uh, you just want to see who wins the outcome. No, I am not. I don't want to be involved in that nonsense because I know it's nonsense because I've studied it for a long time. Well, well, and and the major problem is, and and this will set you up perfectly where where I hope you're thinking of going. Uh, the major problem is as follows: We're now given false choices based on bad information. Okay. <laughs> That's where I was going, Mr. Rotelli, yeah. And the thing is that nobody on either side is doing you a favor, and that's the problem, because we can no longer even agree. You know, check it out. Any of these arguments, debates, whatever, which everybody's looking to debate and assert their alleged side, their alleged opinion, even though mostly it's been spoon-fed to them by something. You can almost recognize the pattern if you just listen to anybody for five minutes. And the beach ball issues, too, that don't really matter, that they bring out every sure. four years. Yeah, yeah let's, let's argue about school choice, even though neither one of us has kids. You know, let, let's argue. Gay marriage, like it's every time, every four years. Sure, why not? Because that'll keep you from actually looking at, at, at the reality here. But that's the thing, is we fail to even agree upon, you know, empirical facts this is what it is. No, it's not. You know, this is, as far as I can tell, something that would normally be treated as a crime. No, it's not if this person does it. Right. Okay. This is actually wrong to do. No, it's not because, you know well, what I'm saying? No matter yeah. what, there's always a contortion to change even the nature of the thing we're looking at. We can no longer even look at something and say, you know what? That's a street. That's the sky, that's air, that's water. Debate has broken down because no one actually objectively learns or examines things critically. And therefore, we don't even agree on the starting point. The divide and conquer thing for me. Uh, well, it's the perfected divide and conquer, right. Exactly. So, so what, I'll shut up now. Let me. No, no, no. You won't shut up. I hope you don't show. No, what I was basically, um, I wanted to get to, but I was trying to figure out a, a smooth transition to it. But I think we kind of did right now. What, what, at, what sets your research and your opinion on uh, not just JFK, but like a lot of other events throughout our, our times, is that you have the the ability to kind of call out the bullshit um, that others peddle as fact when that might not necessarily be the case. But when did you find yourself actually, you know, being critical of those that are supposed to be critical in general? All right. Well, I don't know if I call out bullshit. I, I don't, I don't know if I actually do that because well, you, do, you do research in a way where you, well, I, you, well, you don't me... get married to a certain outcome without looking at all the evidence and a lot of researchers will either make mistakes or they'll just take uh, shortcuts to get to whatever their perceived uh, idea of the outcome is or or some people can't accept um, changing their their thought or their perspective with new evidence introduced to them mm. when did you kind of um, were you always like that where you were able to cut I'm basically, I'm trying to uh, compliment you because you're able to do things that even people like myself sometimes get trapped in, like uh, with research, where you're not taking all the appropriate steps. You're kind of coming to a conclusion without looking at every single angle or being blinded to it sometimes. Well, I, I think what you're getting at is that, look, I, I just, 
I happen to go at things a little bit differently from others because I don't have this confidence that I understand everything. So I say to myself, how is it that I can establish this? Uh, whatever the, you know, let's just take the JFK thing. All right. I am an advocate for the idea that there is certainly a conspiracy at play here that caused this to happen. I believe that there was very powerful people who wanted this to happen. Okay. That's a fairly open-ended thing. Now, how do I prove that? Well, first I have to know how the crime occurred. That's a difficulty, of course, with this case that is, you know, uh, please, how many hours do you have? Uh, but the thing is, you have to prove that something happened with as verifiable and objective good pieces of evidence as you can. And you have to be able to put it together, in my mind, uh, almost as if you're trying to enter it into a courtroom. Right. You know, because someone said something happened. Okay, now, how do you verify that someone had something occur? I mean, let's take a mundane thing. Uh, Chris, you claim to live at a certain address. All right. How could we prove that you live there? Well, we could go there and see if you're actually there while you're living there. Uh, we, we could see maybe you have your mail delivered there. Uh, we could check and see if you've been photographed there anytime recently. I mean, there's different ways to take just a very simple claim and try and come up with pieces of evidence that are not based on just someone's story or hearsay uh, to try and back it up. Now, if you can back those things up and I can say, well, look, here's his mail. Uh, he's registered his car there. Uh, here's a photograph of him you know, just happening to be sitting on the porch at that property. Um, you know, it's pretty good evidence that you may indeed live there. Now, is it possible that you don't? And I have all these things. Yes. So let's keep looking. Do we have other proof that you've been there? Other witnesses to back up the fact that you live there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you can go at it from all different angles, but if all I accept is here's a piece of mail, and it says that you are at that address, Chris. Well, that's it. Okay, you live there. This is the problem that I've seen over and over again, where people take a very small thing, and because it fits with the story they want to tell, yeah. uh, they they just slot it in there. You know, yep, that's it. They live there because I have a piece of mail. Well, you and I both know you can have mail sent to different places. <laughs> you know, it's a little less likely. I mean... In the old days when we used to get like, what was it, uh, Columbia House, right? <laughs> and you could have anybody's name sent to any address, right? Uh, I'm not going to reveal too many weird things about that because we'll get into a rabbit hole. But 99 cents for 100 uh, albums. <laughs> yeah, whatever it was. But you could turn around and send it to my address in your name. Yeah. And they'll do it. Okay. You need corroboration. You need more than just that one piece of evidence to really corroboration as much as possible. I mean, I try to go with the rule of three as best I can. And I mean, step by step on it, yeah. you know? Uh, okay. Because someone said it. All right. There's a start. But if there's more than one person saying it and they're not in communication with the other person, that's helpful, right. not definitive. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and I'm trying to do this as open-ended as possible uh, about anything. And you can do this with every single fact. Uh, regarding the case, I know it's tedious and it takes time, but you know, it's people more make accurate than what everyone else is doing. 
basically. Well, it's it makes more sense. I've got five things to back up what I'm saying as opposed to nothing or as opposed to I'm guessing that this is this. I heard this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I was told this or that. I mean, if I took every single story about, you know, if we step away from the JFK assassination, yeah. uh, I've investigated things that were personal to me. Very difficult. Uh, I investigated my father's death uh, because there was uh, there were stories among people that were close to him, including his own sister, that uh, he would he may have been deep and murdered as opposed to the suicide. Uh and true, I may have wanted to believe that personally. Uh, but after I went through a, a great deal of, of time investigating as best I could, uh, I found that uh, that the official story in that case, oddly enough, was uh, very likely true. Right. Uh, you know, and, and no, it wasn't a happy thing. I don't think I would have been happy if he had been murdered either. But it would have given me a different answer that might have been a little less heartbreaking. Now. I can accept that I'll take the heartbreaking answer because to my mind, I was able to verify it many different ways, the circumstances that occurred. Right. Uh, and so there you have it. Right. And I ended up with the, the coroner's report. I uh, ended up talking to one of the people who was responsible for handling his body. Uh, I spoke to uh, the police officers present. Uh, I got a hold of the photographs of the scene. Okay. And I did all of that in order to make sure that the story made sense. Uh, and in the newspaper, you know, they, they put two paragraphs about it, which was death ruled a suicide and was very factual and was a space filler in the Asbury Park Press, uh, you know, on September 13, 1976, which was two days after he died on September 11, 1976. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm taking it to the, don't, don't, don't feel bad or anything. I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm just saying that from a very personal thing, I was able to say, you know what? I need to verify this many different ways. And I did. Well, that's what leads up to uh, how, where you are today is, and I think it's important for those that don't know you, or even those that do know you in a way, maybe haven't heard any of this before and maybe have written you off being like, Oh, he he maybe he's a pain in the ass. Cause he, you know, everything he's debunking and that type of thing. There's a reason that you there's a method to your madness for lack of a better term well, and right. the idea of why the J, the jfk assassination has been something very important to you for most of your life adult life now mm -hmm. and i just want to make that nice and clear to those who don't know you or even those who do know you but don't know that aspect about you so which leads us to going back to jfk mm -hmm. I know there's a specific topic and this is a, actually there's a specific lady that we're going to get into. Um, but first I wanted to see if you had some shining examples of some misdirection or, you know, a different, maybe if there was any other aspects to the research community over the years or a piece of information that kind of got, you know, got a little too much attention that maybe you were able to look into and find that was maybe not factual at all. Mm -hmm. Besides the main one we're going to focus on in a second. Well, you know what, a again, people working with what it is they had and making assumptions have made declarations over the years. And so I'll go through a few of them. 
Yeah. Uh, and I did a series on the Ocelli effect called uh, JFK myths. Yeah. And I did it in partnership with various other researchers. Uh, you know, Sherry Feaster was on one of them. Uh, Joan Mellon was on one of them. Uh, Carmine yeah. Savastano was on Larry. Hancock. Yep. Uh, you know, Rob from the lone gunman podcast. Uh, I've had various others cause these were all panel discussions. Um, yeah. Charles Cliff, um, you know, lesser known people. One guy who was actually a couple of guys who uh, more or less believe that uh, that the official story is correct, but they have done a lot of research on the subject. I even had them on uh, to debunk certain things that were mythological. They got a little angry at me when I focused an episode on the official story being the big myth, but uh, but it was what it was. I, I I speak from the position of here's why. Okay, here's what the problem is. Uh, and you know, one of my favorites from that series actually is something I can't even remember how it was debunked, but when you hear it, you're not going to care. Uh, somehow or other Scientology and L Ron Hubbard was connected to the group that committed the assassination. All right. I've heard that one too. Yeah. I, I love that one. I mean, look, they'll put it with everybody, right? Right. Uh, you know, how, how many people, we, we couldn't even begin to make a whole list of, uh, people that have been blamed uh, people that are supposed to be responsible. I mean, please, the list and is Frank Sinatra, Israel. There's all kinds. Sure. Yeah. Uh, right. And and you know what? But let's since you mentioned Israel, uh, I love that one. You know because oh well, Israel and the Mossad they're responsible because. And here's where the trouble comes in, right? right. Uh, they're responsible because they were going to get nukes. Yeah. The trouble is that Israel already had nukes, so. Killing John F. Kennedy wasn't going to prevent them from getting something they already had. Right. Uh, you know, and these things have been entered into the myths. And I got to revive that show, by the way. I got to bring it back. I, I'm going to re-release a bunch of old shows that I didn't have uh, the same listener base for that I have now to show people again because they're no longer available on YouTube. Well, selfishly, uh, Chuck, I'll tell you flat out that that's a part of the reason that I wanted to have you on as well for many reasons. But that was one is I was hoping you would bring that back. Yeah, I'm going to bring not only am I going to bring back the old ones, but I'm, I'm trying to get together a couple of groups of guys because I want more than one. It's not just about me and what I found. Right. I want other people who say, you know what, I've been frustrated with this or that over the years. I want to debunk this. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you another famous example from somebody who I appreciate and actually like Bill Cooper. Yeah. Uh, that's the other one I was thinking of, <laughs> yep. you know, and, and I love Bill Cooper. I was listening to Bill Cooper on shortwave radio. Okay. Uh, when I was in what high school or junior high school or both. This is the hour of the time. I'm the hour of the time. Yep. The, uh, the mystery Babylon series. I mean, yep. the stuff about, uh, you know, the new world order, iron mountain, uh, the executive Plaza and all the Masonic uh, stuff there. Yeah. Which is, which is very true. Yeah. He even did a presentation. You could see that maybe still on YouTube folks. Uh, well, I saw him and I saw him in person myself in, you did. in, in the early nineties, uh, a trip wow. to Georgia. It was my first trip to Georgia with friends. Right. We just, you know, young guys, Hey, let's take a road trip. Uh, we went to go see Bill Cooper do one of these things where he spent a lot of time on aliens and all that. Right. I don't know what to think of all of his alien presentations. Well, okay? I'll tell you this right flat out. Uh, just one, uh, just one thing I want people to know that I, that I've listened to all of the episodes of the hour of the time. 
Right. He ended up admitting later on that he was wrong about what Chuck's about to say with the, the driver and the Zapruder film. He admitted that he was wrong. He was duped. And in the end, he admitted that he was duped with the alien thing, too. But you never hear anyone mention that. He admitted he was wrong. And a lot of researchers will never admit when they're wrong. Well, that's an interesting thing about Cooper is that he would admit to mistakes, uh, not not necessarily right away. <laughs> but, well, well, yeah, he there was decades, <laughs> decades along with the alien thing. But in the end, he thought he was duped, and it was very much a man-made thing, the saucers and things that he had seen. Well, right. You know, but my problems with, with the whole Cooper thing are a couple, uh, you know, and, and they're honest problems. And again, I value and think that he made a contribution as far as there would be no alternative or independent media without this guy. There'd be no he, Eric Stones <laughs> without Cooper either. Maybe not. You know, uh, him and AJ, they had a little problem there, right, around the Y2K time because Jones was on the air screaming about, you know, the missiles are coming. It's breaking yes. down. All the, nu the, the, the nukes are coming, and, uh, yeah, the planes are falling out of the sky. And yeah. then Bill did a whole episode, like, two days later, and said, this guy is full of shit. Well, right. And you know what? The, the, the thing is, that's why I used to call him Panic Attack Jones, by the way. <laughs> because people would tell me with anxiety disorders, like, I can't listen to this guy, you know? Uh, yeah, that sucks. Uh, Cause that's what he does. One time I had not listened to his show in a couple of years and I turned it on after I'm no, I'm sidetracking, but just for a second, I turned on his show after not listening to it for two, three, four years. I just randomly wanted to see, you know, cause he has a radio feed 24 hours a day. Like I do. Uh, you know, so I turned that on and I go like, I, I am greeted with, we're being invaded from the Southern border. There's an invasion going on right now. And it sounds like he's live and he's live on the scene allegedly uh you know giving a report that there is a literal invasion that people are pouring over the border where he's sitting yeah uh you would have thought that uh, that there was a red dawn happening it was you a know, war, you, yeah war of the worlds thing going it, on almost and and the guy does it all the time this is happening i can't believe it Mara. Yeah. The frogs are gay. All right, look. And that's why Bill Cooper would say would yell at callers that would call in and, and give him news items on the air, and he would yell at them and hang up if they couldn't uh, cite their source. Yeah, what's your source? Where are you getting this from? And then he also said, don't yeah. trust me. Do your own research. And I which, always valued that. Which is something that, that, that I, I ripped off of him because I've said it all the time. I but say it's true, it, though. It's true, though. So, and, and I'll tell you that about this subject, you know, that we finally get to here since we've now gone through a lot of different things. When we finally get to this, I'll tell you right now, don't trust what I'm saying. Go ahead and look at what I'm saying. Please examine it. Yeah. I actually don't want to give you the answers to these things. I want you to see it for yourself, right. please. Yeah. You know, and if I can just help you along the way, I am grateful and thankful that I can. So, because anyway. I'll actually say that I'll I'll say that you helped me correct myself too, because I got I kind of got away uh, with making the claim that George DeMornshield was Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, CIA handler, and I had read that so many times mm -hmm. from different sources that when you go back and you look, it, they were questionable. So it almost becomes like it, it's a known fact when it really isn't. Well, see, but that's the thing is when things are repeated so often and become so commonplace, 
then they are again parroted by somebody else. This is why it's so important to test these things for yourself step by step. And back to Cooper on this, several times I know that I would listen to that show and not only would he yell at people, but he would tell them, look, I'm not letting you continue on with what you're saying until you can give me something to verify and a, a fairly, uh, you know, a, a controversial claim. You can't make controversial claims. And, and Alex just, would just let anyone on the air and spout off anything without any source. That was look, the contrast between the two. See, but forget about Alex Jones. If it was just one Alex Jones in the world, it would be, you know, not right. so bad. But right. the problem is that, again, because Cooper had done those presentations and the limo driver shot him, And it wasn't just the limo driver shot him and there's a blurry video. Here's the thing that sticks in my craw about Cooper. And much as I appreciated the guy, I got to call it like it is. His whole presentation, which I got a hold of one of those videotapes at the time when he put it out around that 25th anniversary. Okay. Uh, You had to send 50 bucks to, uh, to a PO box in Arizona to get this. Okay. You got, you got a VHS. And you got a package of documents, okay? Uh, And the thing is this. During his presentation, he would say that he had worked for this guy, Admiral Cleary, who was, uh, and, you know, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he would say that he saw documentation. This is the problem I have with him still. He saw documents that stated this, that the driver shot Kennedy. Yeah. That's a problem. Because I don't believe for a second that any such document exists. It doesn't make sense that it would have been sent through the guy who's in control of a fleet in the Pacific. Yeah. It doesn't make sense that the military intelligence is telling him about something that the Secret Service or the investigative agency, the FBI, would actually have had the files on. The whole thing makes no sense. There is no reason. For Admiral Cleary to have this stuff on his desk at all. Right. So you have problems there. And I don't believe for a second that a document existed that said it, that said this. It's problematic. It doesn't fit with the circumstances of reality. And this is where we really get into the subject now. Because it's not just that. It's not just the parroting of this bad thing or that bad thing. But the idea that the mafia is absolutely linked to the Kennedy assassination is a little bit difficult. You got possibilities. You have the proof. We know for certain that the, uh, that they were hired by intelligence agencies to do things, Yep. but to make the leap that we know for certain they were involved is a problem. Anyway, that's one of those things that gets repeated all the time. Other so because the mafia can't control them, have a, some kind of hold on the media for 50, 60 years. And they also can't, they're not in charge of changing the the motorcade route too. So well, at some point you have to involve the secret service here, exactly. you know, at some point, and, and there you go again, there, there are people that claim that, uh, you know, the, the guy in the follow-up car accidentally fired an AR. That was the most ridiculous one too. Yeah, Chuck. Sorry. I cut you off. Tell everyone what that one was about. Well, I'm just trying to hit a couple of these things that have been repeated so many times that there are some people that grab a hold of them and just run with them. Uh, You know, there was a guy named Donahue who was a, a, uh, I would say, a ballistics expert on some level. But, I mean, a gunsmith, uh, an experienced guy who understood certain things. He claimed 
that he could back it up scientifically that that's what happened. Well, uh, for those that don't, that don't know, and I cut you up, what what was that theory? Because there was a book that came out, and it was ridiculous in my opinion. But what was that theory focusing on? With about uh, the book? mortal error uh, was the name of the book, and uh, the author's name escapes me at the moment. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, there was a lawsuit over it. In fact, that because uh, the surviving Secret Service agent who was alleged to have accidentally fired the shot that blew Kennedy's head off. Okay, it was like Hicks, or I believe Hickey. Hickey. That's uh, right. He took the author to court and won yep. because the guy has no tangible proof to back up his thesis. Okay, that's why when you take something to court, you have to, you know, when when you claim that someone is defaming you. Yeah. The other person is now required to say, no, I have evidence to back my claim. And, you know, Preminger and his publisher there, I think it was Otto or Preminger or Boninger, whatever his name was. Well, Otto uh, Preminger was the uh, the director, wasn't it? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it was Boninger. I, I don't remember. Boninger, I, think, I yeah. remember that the, the book had a silver cover to it and was pushed as a very popular theory at the time. Yeah. Uh, anyway point is that he had nothing to back it up at the end of the day right so the guy won the lawsuit yeah. uh there's other instances of things that couldn't be backed up and sometimes you know well-meaning individuals um well, what's your stance on the two oswalds thing too because well, that was always questionable well before we get there the two oswalds oh. things existed for a long time before we get there i'll give you one that i started to fall sure. for okay yeah. uh, which was uh the the idea about the french gunman Oh, yeah. Uh, that theory, there was a, a journalist named Stu, Steve Rebell who uh, followed up on it and had made a connection with a, a Marseille gangster who was involved in the uh, French connection, you know, the heroin smuggling ring, which they made uh, into a movie. Yep. With, uh, made into, yep. Sure. They made that into a movie as well. But there, there's it's real world. Uh, there were French gangsters, basically, that were go betweens and uh, ran heroin all around the world. Uh, through a port uh, called Marseille. They're generally known as the Marseille gangsters. This guy, Christian David, who was uh, you know, part of that organization in one way or another, was in prison and was making claims that he knew the gunmen, yeah. uh, that, that uh, you know, they were friends of his. He knew about the contract. He knew about all that. Uh, and he had gotten Steve Rebell involved in it and uh, tried to have Steve Rebell find him a lawyer and this and that. Uh, it's a whole story. I'm not going to you know, go through the whole thing, find out about it for yourselves. Uh, at a certain point, it seemed plausible to me. It seemed to make sense. How do you get, you know, gunmen in and out of uh, Dealey Plaza? Well, French guys, not so bad. Uh, they could fit in real easy, uh, you know, etc. A whole lot of stuff about that story sounded very plausible, very good. Uh, at the end of it, it ends up having nothing to back it. Okay. Uh, you know, they, they, they tried to place a guy at a certain position. And there's the only thing that's creepy about it to me is that in my estimation, uh, Sherry Feaster approved, uh, forensically, uh, through techniques that weren't even developed at the time, uh, of the assassination, uh, through blood spatter and use of the available, the evidence she had available to her that, uh, you have a shooter from the front and not only is that shooter from the front, but could be positioned in exactly the spot that, uh, you know, David and uh, another uh, informant who was involved in the uh, Marseille situation uh, had positioned this uh, Lucian, um, yep. 
not Conine, uh, uh, the the other Lu Lucian. I I can't remember his his last name. Either way, it was another gangster who had been known as somebody who was a killer, etc. Uh, the type of guy that could have been hired for a dangerous contract, um, legitimately, uh, a hitman, and they put him in this one spot that actually matches up with where Sherry Feaster figures out later that there was a very likely gunman. Which, by the way, no professional in crime scene investigation has challenged her findings uh, in the book. Um, uh, what is it called? Um, my goodness. You know, um, I, I have it behind is me. Her name, just one more time. Her name is, so people can look her up. Sherry. Uh, Sherry, Sherry Feaster. Feaster. Okay. Feaster. Yeah. Uh, enemy of the truth. That's that's the uh, main title. Enemy of the truth, and uh, also the the word myths is in the title, which okay. is why I brought her on the myth show. Um, but she goes through blood spatter analysis and a bunch of other things related to available evidence to say that effectively you got a shot from the front. Right. Um, anyhow, yeah, it, it does line up. This uh, Lucien, I, I, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but it doesn't matter. It's in The Men Who Killed Kennedy in that series. I think it's in the first episode even. The, the well, the, the book that you were just talking about, Enemy of the Truth, Myths, Forensics, and the Kennedy Assassination. That's the name, the full name. That's correct. Yep. Right. Uh, and uh, Sherry is now uh, deceased, so you know we can't talk to her anymore, but I interviewed her a few times. I'll re-release those also in the coming months. Um. The thing is, though, and nobody's ever challenged it, by the way. Again, somebody could, if they wanted to, who's in that type of business. And she was fully qualified to testify in court about blood spatter, like uh, like Dexter in the, in the series, right? The TV series. Yeah. That was basically her job, a blood spatter analysis. Okay. Uh, and, and she did other crime scene investigation. So with her skill set intact, she did this and wrote that book. Uh, and I'm just saying nobody in that field has challenged it. Okay. And yeah. she wrote it several years ago. Um, but anyway, I was partially duped. I thought it was very plausible, but then they got into a part where they involved the Italian mafia and they talked about how people could be smuggled in and out of the country, uh, through this, uh, path that has something to do with Montreal. I'll leave it at that. Um, but I happen to have personal knowledge of this. So I went to the people that I knew ran it wow. uh, to see about exactly how factual, how much sense this makes. Uh, and uh, whoever is telling the story there does not know how it works right. because they had parts of the story wrong. And this idea that they were delivered to a safe house and all this other stuff uh, becomes problematic. So again, I was partially responsible for undermining that story because there's a real world element. Anyway, these things have gone on. Uh, you know, maybe it was the tramps. Maybe it was James Files, for God's sake. Who now? Maybe Woody Harrelson's father. <laughs> you know, Woody Harrelson's father. Right. Uh, you know, Charles Harrelson, in case people don't know, yep. was a criminal, was a murderer, so and was, yep. was Woody Harrelson's father, too. Yep. Uh, so, anyway, lots of things have gone on like this. People have made a, a lot of... Um, Let's call them uh, a difficult to believe claims over the years. Uh, you know, extraordinary claims. Uh, and again, you're going to require extraordinary evidence to back them. And if your evidence falls apart, it's problematic. So now on to the big thing. Judith Mary Baker. 
Yeah. All right. She came to prominence in the early 2000s, really, but a book was written in 1999 that told this story of her being the mistress, the lover on the side of Lee Harvey Oswald, right? You know, not his wife on the side, his side piece, so to speak, right? Side pieces. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that got onto one of the Men Who Killed Kennedy episodes. And uh, th this is a very attractive story. I'll say something here that I've never said anywhere in public. Oh, cool. uh, I wish that uh, I, I did wish at the time that this story was true. Right. It, it would have been great to have an inside track and somebody who was right there, not Marina Oswald that would have given us a greater insight to Oswald. Cause I think if we do have an honest look at this young man, uh, we would find that he has been wholly misrepresented by everybody who has tried to characterize him. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been nice to have somebody who had intimate knowledge, who was willing to talk about the secretive side of Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. Even though I don't for a second believe that he is the sole assassin. Uh, could he have been involved in things? Yes. But do you feel, uh, based on your research over the years, do you feel that there is a possibility that he may have been a part of a, a team that was trying to prevent an assassination? Do you put any stock into that theory? A lot of jumps you got to make before you get into the abort team thing. Okay. okay? Because the thing is, first, you got to have him involved in the situation at all. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and, and trying to put the... See, see what I'm saying is that we're already going to the abort team. No, that's fine. No, I, I was just curious offhand if you had. Oh, no. no, no, no. I'm not trying to criticize you, though. I'm, I'm just trying to say that that's where people will go right away. Well, don't you think he was innocent? Hold no, on. no, I, I don't personally believe he was good or bad. I'm not really sure. Uh, well, no, I got you. But, but my problem is, is that, you know, some people want you to immediately state, look, he was innocent. No, right. he was absolutely guilty, uh, you know. Uh, he's part of a conspiracy. But with Judith, though, if she had been, if if she was the real deal, might have may have shed light on that. She well. could have shed light on a lot of things if she was the real deal. I I right. thought it would have been a great thing, but problem. Uh, everywhere you turn, uh, as her story has continued to come out since 1999, because remember she disappeared. Yeah. Uh, she wasn't around. Nobody seemed to be able to find her. I'll tell you this. Uh, if she was really somebody who was intimately involved with Lee Harvey Oswald, I find it amazing that Joan Mellon, who conducted 1,200 interviews, something like 1,200 interviews, okay, to write about uh, Jim Garrison in New Orleans, yep. not a single person ever mentioned Judith Barry or Judy or this other lover of Oswald's, uh, nobody, nobody, not his family members, not his brother. I mean, this is a very serious, well-kept secret. I'll tell you if, if, if true, right? right? Because nobody saw her. And even when she's tried to, well, let me not get ahead of myself. I, I could tell you a couple of stories about where she's tried to insert herself, but let's we'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's go back to 1999. And maybe I don't need to tell you those stories. I want, people out there to listen and look for themselves examine these things themselves take a look at the original story okay the original story and and also remember that well ed haslam 
Yeah, Ed Haslam wrote a version of that book that didn't have her in it. And I endorse a lot of what Ed Haslam had to say in that book before he added her to the equation. Okay. Okay. Full disclosure. Uh, okay. Yeah, he did a lot of good work there. Uh, but then I don't know why he believed that. I've been, I've been told other things about what he believes now. Right. I won't speak for him about what he believes. Yeah. I'll just say he had a version of the book. It was called Mary Fairy and the Monkey Virus, I think. Yes. Uh, and now it's called... Uh, uh, and, that, and that, for people who don't know, went into the uh, theory that Oswald and... Uh, his mistress, they were helping to work on the cancer weapon, right? Well, no, that's not until we get to uh, Dr. Mary's monkey, which is oh, the new that's far ahead, too. Okay, sorry. No, Dr. <laughs> There's Mary so many things to this case. Oh, I know, but Dr. Mary's monkey is the version of the book Ed Haslam wrote where he inserts uh, Judy Baker into it, okay? okay? And that's where there's a cancer weapon and all this stuff. So right. let's go back to 1999, though. Yes. Uh, because when she first wrote this version of her story, there's no cancer weapon. Really? There's no cancer weapon. There's And there were original drafts that went around. And I, I don't know where the book is anymore, but I had a copy of this thing. It was in two volumes uh, at one time. Uh, the uh, Not the production, like, fully published book, but the pre-production book. Like the manuscript? There, it was in two parts, the manuscript. Um, and there was no cancer weapon, okay? Wow. But anyway, don't take my that's word big. for that. No, that's big. I'm, I'm going to look it up. I, I believe Please it. do. Please do. And if you can find it, I'd love to see it and show it to other people. But doesn't even matter. Skip that. Imagine I didn't say that. Let's, let's continue on with from 1999. Right. From the time that the story, which was called The Love Affair on uh, The Men Who Killed Kennedy, aired. Her story has continued to evolve, okay? And each time during different time frames, she's added additional pieces of information. And they're very strange because they seem to come out around the same time that other people's books and theories come out. Right. All of a sudden, there's a new edition. I'll give you a, for instance, right there in that The Love Affair, and I, and I just ask an objective question here. Because for a while, she had this uh, very well-patterned interview. And yes, I know the story about how 60 Minutes had uh, uh, actually tracked down the story, did a little investigation, and decided she was full of crap. Right. I, I know what the counter is. Oh, well, of course, it's CBS, and they're, you know, they're in. So forget it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't tell a real story. Okay, sorry, sorry to the uh, viewers or listeners right now. I'm just going to uh, mute and take my camera off because I have to travel through a hallway right now. So please, Chuck, I'm here with you and, and sorry about that. Yeah, no problem at all. I'll just continue on for a minute and then we'll get back to it. Uh, so 60 Minutes decides that she's not, you know, back in this time period, that she's not uh, telling the truth, basically, and they're not going to cover the story. Some people would say, well, that's because they're gatekeepers and that's that. Fine. No argument from me. But keep piling on these little things where you have to make an alternate explanation for what's going on. Back to the love affair uh, on the men who killed Kennedy. For a while there, she had a pattern in her interviews where she would talk about uh, their final conversations, which she alleged that they had through a special arrangement that mobsters had set up for them because Lee was well known by the gangsters and, uh, uh, literally at certain points, uh, she was trying to say that it was un Uncle Uncle Carlos Mar Marcello 
you know, Uncle Marcelo there would uh, would be keeping an eye on her while she was in Florida, and and Tropicante would keep an eye on her when she moved to Florida afterwards, um, after she left New Orleans. So supposedly she's having conversations with him while she's living in Florida, and he's in Dallas. And uh, he's telling her about things that are going on right all the way up until a day or two before the assassination. Um, really interesting that you have to buy that, you know, mob guys would set up a special phone line for Lee Harvey Oswald to talk to his girlfriend. But, uh, okay, let's just say you believe that, which uh, is not plausible if you get her explanation on it. It doesn't match up to what would actually happen and what the realities were of the fact that uh, mafia guys did have a way of dealing with the phone company and hooking up special lines. Anyway, forget the real world, right? What do I know? It doesn't comport with that reality. But anyway, back right. to this. Right. Uh, one of the big things she would do is on cue, she'd start saying about the final conversation and the final last words, and she'd start crying a bit. And, and he would say, you know. Uh, and when she does this, she goes, and he told me, because it was very popular at the time, a certain theory. Right. He told me, never forget the name Bobby Baker. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So why is it never forget the name Bobby Baker? Because as researchers like uh, Ed Tatro and others had revealed quite factually, uh, Bobby Baker was well involved with Lyndon Johnson and his nefarious activities. Oh, really? And there were investigations going on. Bobby Baker was a guy who some people would even call him uh, Johnson's bag man. Oh, wow. Uh, look it up. If you get into the LBJ criminal enterprise, there's a lot there. Landslide Linden. <laughs> uh, well, Landslide Linden and uh, was it box 46 or 42? I, I forget which 46. box it was they stole. Yeah, Either way, so. whatever. Landslide <laughs> Linden, all kinds of stuff. Lion Linden, sure. Um, anyway. So never forget the name Bobby Baker, or or the name Lucien Sartai. Uh, yeah, Sar Sartide. Oh yeah, that was the name of the, the French guy I was trying to remember. Yeah, Sartide. Yeah, you go. <laughs> Anyways, um, that was the guy David was talking about. But let's not go back there just yet. So why is this so strange that she's being told to remember the name Bobby Baker? So what you're telling me is, an assassin on the ground knows that Lyndon Johnson is in the mix as far as the command and control regarding the assassination. Right. So he knows that, first of all. Second of all, you're going to have to be aware of his bag man. Okay, he's telling Judy this. Just tell me what sense this makes. Be aware of LBJ's bag man because I know he's actually at the helm here for the assassination. Right. All right. Assuming that her story is even true, how ridiculous does that sound? But here's the other ridiculous part of it. Why would she have trouble remembering the name Bobby Baker, considering that her name was Judith Barry Baker, and the Baker name comes from the husband, Robert, that she just married? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, don't make no... Something is a little goofy about said story, and you can see her cry on cue during the same discussions uh, multiple times. Interesting stuff like that, where you can begin to detect there are problems with the story. Right. Uh, I've heard people that were very friendly to her that wouldn't really challenge her much, but did ask her questions, interview her before around this time period. And they would ask things like, 
tell us something intimate about Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> right. Um, I'll tell you what I found interesting about it. Not the details that she gave, because she never really does give any sort of definitive details that uh, would be unique. They always seem to be able to be found some places. And on occasion, she would actually tell an interviewer that, you know, the idea that he was a lone nut and antisocial and all that, that's not true. And you know how you can see that is in Robert Groden's book. Oh, here we go. Yep. Show, show that one more time, Chuck. Like, yeah, no, this, the search for Lee Harvey Oswald, which contains a whole lot okay. of very interesting photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald. And indeed, if you were to take a look at pictures of him as a kid or with his family and things like this, yep, yep. you wouldn't say that he appears to be an antisocial person. He's socializing with people. She points out that he puts his arms on people and things like that. Yep. But doesn't give... From a personal side, when she's asked that question, she points to pictures in a book. Right. Oh, and by the by, a mistress who is so deeply in love with a man that she's painting portraits of him and photoshopping herself into pictures with him. I didn't even know that. <laughs> years later, somebody who's doing that, she doesn't actually have any photographs of herself with Lee. She doesn't have any photographs of Lee that she took herself well can i play devil's advocate uh for sure, one second because i've heard this brought up before mm -hmm. that if you're going to be you know cheating on uh well not that if you're going to have an affair you're probably not going to document it yeah that's that's real cute but here, here's the thing it's not true i know that that's the okay, kind of no, thing I'm, just, I'm just saying that other people will bring that up sometimes i understand that uh, you know, I'll give you a little bit of a disclosure. Uh, look, um, you know, I, uh, had sex outside of both of my marriages. Yeah. Uh, I had photographs of the ladies. Fair enough. Uh, I've known other people, uh, women, especially that, you know, even if it was just a Polaroid, so it's a one off and you can't make copies and there's only one of it. People have right. photographs of other people. I'm just saying. Yeah, it could, it could be, yeah, it could be either or. Some people are more discreet. She has no actual mementos of anything that is provably tied to him. To back her story up, right. Uh, at one point, I think she claimed to have a, a set of flip-flops that might have belonged to him. Oh, my God. Uh, I think. <laughs> right. But there is no remnants. There's no trace. But but anyway, back to this thing. When she's there's asked, things that other people could have uh, searched out as well and well, made a story up. I'm just saying, I'm going from publicly observable things here, right? Okay. Now. Yep. From her interviews, she's asked about, you know, the meeting. The meeting is very interesting. Uh, they meet in a post office, to give you a quick summary. They meet in a post office because she drops some things on the ground. Right. And he politely picks it up, and he's very, he's very dapper, and he's very clean-shaven, and he's very together. Now, all of that sounds very nice, but they exchange words in Russian even though they've never met before in the post office, right? <laughs> right. In New Orleans. This is in Marina we're talking about. We're talking about Judith. Well, no, no, no. This is not Marina, right? This is Judith. Just randomly, he's in the post office, same time as her. They decide to converse in Russian. Right. This is when the big spark is lit. She always tells this story about how, you know. <laughs> right. um, you're speaking in Russian to somebody that you don't know at all in New Orleans, which is a fairly hostile town to communists, let's say, yep. at the time. And speaking Russian might sound like, you know, imagine somebody 
randomly breaking out into Arabic in a post office. <laughs> post uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. In January of uh, 2002, right in uh, New Jersey, which is close enough to New York that you might have some hostility toward, you know, Arab speakers. Right. Um, not likely. A lot of, uh, <laughs> as an example, real quick, there was a, a somewhat famous case of a gas station uh, wor worker that was actually Indian. Mm -hmm. that a person mistaken for uh, Arabic and killed them. So you're right. You're correct. I, I physically had to stop people from attacking guys who were Pakistani and Indian yep. in a New Jersey gas station in the weeks that followed 9-11. Yep. Because I worked in gas stations at the time. I worked for ExxonMobil. I physically had to put myself in between angry Americans and Pakistani and Indian gas pumpers, okay? So that's the correlation, like, with uh, what you're saying, that communism, you know. Was I'm huge. just saying, at the time, New yeah. Orleans was not a friendly place for commies. And if you were speaking Russian, you might have been seen as a commie. But again, you know what? Throw aside everything I've said. Fine, fine, fine. I'm just trying to point out there's a lot of real-world problems here, yeah. just on the surface. So here's the other problem with her breaking out into Russian like this. She's been asked during interviews around this time again when people were interested. Well, can you tell us what you said in Russian? Well, she couldn't outside of maybe a couple of things. And wow. they would say, well, but you were supposedly fluent in Russian. And so was he. Ask her to speak it today. Ask her to speak it back then. She would claim that she had basically forgotten her Convenient. Russian. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, you know what? Is it possible? Sure. But there's a lot of weakness here that she gives out all by herself in her public discussions. Right. Okay. The idea that Lee Harvey Oswald was dyslexic is another fun thing that she puts out there. She claims to have been working at a job with Oswald where they did paintings, uh, where they had to paint uh, signs or actually they were painting flower pots and some other things. And uh, one of the things they had to paint for the Taurus was the word New Orleans. Uh, you know, the, the, the city's name on these things. Um, right. It's very interesting that she tries to claim at one point that Lee would occasionally uh, write it something like W-N-O instead of, or, or W-N-E, excuse me, uh, in his painting. Right. Because he might have had some dyslexia. Now, that is the pedestrian idiotic way that you don't understand dyslexia because that's not something somebody would do right if they have a dyslexic problem and they're making a painting it, it it's not real world compliant it doesn't make sense for somebody who's dyslexic i'm sorry uh i know it seems plausible and logical look into it it doesn't make sense especially considering the fact that the, the guy had been there many times, many years, and had spent part of his formative years there, one of the things that he would be able to write clearly would be new, the word new, and Orleans, okay? There's no sign that he did that sort of switching of the letters. There's technical terms for this, and I've had a doctor confirm this regarding the whole thing about dyslexia. Like, that doesn't make sense. It's like they read things, they see things backwards, but they, they won't 
necessarily write it. You might write things backwards in a certain way, but the way she describes it is not the way a dyslexic would do it. I know everybody's going, well, you're just nitpicking stupid things. Hold on. That very same job is very interesting though, because she would have been, if, if this claim is true, which by the way, there's no paper trail for, <laughs> but if this claim was true, she was working for a business owner in that place where she claims her and Lee both work together. Uh, there's no record of Lee having done this, or there's no record of her having done this. I forget which, or maybe both, but here's the problem about her working there and him working there. Uh, there were laws at the time that wouldn't have allowed white people and black people to use the same bathroom. Right. So as a business bathroom, yep. right. As a business owner, uh, if you had black and white employees, you had to provide them with separate bathrooms. Yeah. Uh, this business didn't have separate bathrooms and was owned by an African-American. So uh, the scrutiny upon them might have been a little rough. I'm just saying there were no separate bathrooms. We can verify that. And that business owner, you know, never claimed that Oswald worked there, but she claimed that it happened. Right. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong about all that. <laughs> he has no corroboration. The bottom line is this. Let's get back to my original premise about what is it that you can show us yeah. at the end of the day. There is virtually nothing outside of a work record, which both of them uh, uh, acquired positions with the Riley Coffee Company. At about the same time, yes. Uh, did they leave at about the same time? Yes. Were they both employed as temps? Yes. Outside of that claim being employed by the same place at the same time for a short time, uh, there's no paper trail outside of that. She has no mementos. She has no corroborating evidence of any kind. Does and, she have any, any other human beings uh, at any point during her claims? Well, one of her big ones, one of her big ones. Remember a guy named David Lewis, who was Vague. Leo Oswald's friend? Vaguely, yeah. Well, he was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's buddy in New Orleans. Um, and uh, he clearly had been around Oswald and has made some interesting claims. He might have indeed been one of the guys who was around and uh, working with him when he was involved with Bannister and all that. Yeah. Okay. So not David Lewis, but David Lewis's wife. Uh, one time Judy went and uh, tracked her down. And... Um, got her to state that, uh, that she had been on a double date with, uh, you know, Lee and her, right. And uh, David and herself, okay. uh, she had, and, and that there was indeed a relationship. So her corroborating witness is that woman who, uh, you know, if you examine the circumstances she was in, uh, that woman's, uh, mental capacity and also her husband's, um, well, let, let's call it flexible stories about Oswald over the years. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much stock I would put in that, but that, to my knowledge, is really the only uh, person that she has to verify it. Uh, you know, Clay Shaw can't speak, even though she claims that he uh, took care of room service and very expensive hotel rooms for them so that they could get together and meet. And all of this, by the way, over the course of a summer, basically. 
which is amazing that she's able to write a 500 page book about David Ferry as well uh, after allegedly working with him over the summer. <laughs> really? Wow. But uh, very busy beaver she is between that and also her claim that Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, he's dyslexic and this and that, but uh, apparently was well-trained enough to be able to handle hazardous materials because this is the reason for his trip to Mexico. Right. Anyway, look, the problem is that over the years, you'll find her constantly attempting to insert herself and the factoids that she gathers yeah. from other people's writings and other people's theories, other people's stuff over the years, whether it's now trying to say that Oswald had knowledge that LBJ is the mastermind, which makes zero sense at all. If he's actually on the ground, right. uh, either as an abort team guy or as an assassin, it makes no sense that he knows that LBJ is at the head of it all. Why yeah. would you tell that to the assassin? Why would he be informed of that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. But uh, another fascinating thing that her supporters ignore is that if you do truly believe her story and, uh, you know, and, and her other interesting ancillary stories about how people are after her, trying to run her off the road, putting glass in her food, yeah. uh, you know, uh, tracking her down, all this other stuff, almost anything that you try and capture about her story, whether it's about the time with Oswald or it's later, falls apart when you examine it. Okay. That's the punchline to all of this. When she claimed to be living in exile and seeking political asylum in Sweden, a gentleman who's been on my show before named uh, Glenn Vikland, who happens to work for the Swedish government, <laughs> uh, took a look at that claim. She was not living in exile. She did apply to live in Sweden. But her whole story about that and how they wouldn't take her in and everything else was fictitious. She claimed she couldn't be in America. She had to live in exile because it was too dangerous for her to return. Wow. Well, I got to tell you, it wasn't too dangerous for her to go and vote in North Carolina, which is where her residence actually was, because they do publish publicly uh, when people vote. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Yeah that this is during the same time period that she's supposed to be in hiding fear of her life. Yeah. She, you know, over and over again, examine any part of it. We used to play a game, uh, friends of mine. I don't have the book anymore. I had a copy of her book, me and Lee. Yeah. Uh, we used to play a game, which is open a page and just you know, randomly pick a page <laughs> and you can find a falsehood on that page that's objectively provable to be false. Literally, if you objectively and scientifically examine every single part of her claim, yeah. outside of the fact that she worked at Riley Coffee with him, that you have to give her. But her claims about interacting with him there are a little bit strange, considering if you know the layout of the building, where he was working, what her job was, what his job was, it almost makes no sense that they, they wouldn't have even seen each other in the lunchroom. You know what I mean? Right. The chances um, of crossing paths, yeah. But okay, let's just say they did. I think at the end of the day, we're looking at somebody who had a brush with history, which many people do, and then they seek to amplify their importance and their involvement in the situation. Yeah. And eventually, they run out of room on that, <laughs> and they have to invent something. Now, I think that she has adequately invented a brilliant piece of fan fiction. Right. But that's all it is. 
uh, any one of her claims, you can go ahead and pull it apart. And I'll tell you something else. I didn't even make any references to this book, but Walt Brown, who in my estimation is an expert on the case. And that's called In Her Own Words. In Her Own Words. Judith Mary Baker, In Her Own Words. He uses her statements, okay, and then compares them with known facts. And it's that thick. I mean, that's pretty good. Wow. You know, and, and that's all it is, is here, here's, you know, a known fact. I'm not going to reference it. I, I, I give it to you as something maybe you want to look at. Now, Mr. Brown wouldn't be able to publish that if it was true defamation, right? Well, good luck. I mean, you, you could be taken to court for it. And I'll tell you something else here. here you want to have, you want to have fun, Chris? You willing to take a little risk? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've done this on my own. I need two two trillion dollars, though. No, no, I've done this on my own show, and uh, and and I have yet to, uh, you know, look. I'm very conscious, you know, uh, with my network. Even we are not going to have things that are legally a problem. Yep. Right. I I avoid that. I've even, you know, legal problems. I try to avoid not controversy, not things that are in dispute, but I mean, legally threaten, you know, like actually threatening somebody right. or making an absolutely false claim and accusing someone of like, you know, criminal activity when you have no basis for it. Exactly. Yep. Things like that. I generally shut down right. on my network, on my show. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. If you claim that someone is a fraud or making a fraudulent claim, they can take you to court. And they can enter into evidence things that back up their claim and say that you have defamed them by claiming that they were fraudulent right? and you've done them damages. I'm not saying every jurisdiction works the same, but pretty much all across the country, you can do this. Right. So, so here's the thing. Judith Barry Baker's story. This is my words, not the words of Chris Graves. <laughs> <laughs> Judith Barry Baker's story is fraudulent. She is a fraud. Judith Barry Baker, take me to court, please. Enter into evidence the legitimacy, your bona fide legitimate evidence that you are not telling a fraudulent story regarding your interaction with Lee Harvey Oswald. Please do it. I will gladly show up and deal with that court case. Happily. <laughs> Now you're reminding me of Tom Grant wanting Courtney Love to take him take him to uh, court. She'll never yeah. do it. She'll never and do she'll it. Do it because she knows exactly. <laughs> and I'm telling you now, and I know Chris Milligan, you know, started to get friendly with me again after being pissed off at me for years. And I know he was, she was, pardon the phrase, his cash cow for a minute, and maybe he was her cash cow for a minute. <laughs> Allegedly, she's made a, she's right. made a lot of inroads. Yep. As far as the research community goes, a lot of people have taken sides with her, have decided to side against all else, and she's grown, as I predicted she would back in 2002. Which, by the way, I've only ever authored two articles in a journal. Uh, one of them was a review of Ernst Titovitz's book, which I'll mention something about Ernst Titovitz related to Judy Baker in a minute. But one of them was a, a review of Ernst Titovitz's book, Oswald's Russian Episode, which is an absolutely unique and valuable uh, uh, book if you want to know about the real Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. Yep. Uh, it's about his time in Russia and it's written by his friend, 
who was there and and still to this day has uh, all kinds of audio recordings of Lee Harvey Oswald that nobody's ever heard uh, because they need to be transferred from real to real tapes. But anyway, honestly, I wrote that review, positive review of that book. The only other one that I ever wrote, I co-authored with Walt Brown in 2012. I think it was. Uh, I believe it was 2012. It might have been 2012 or, tw or 2008. Anyway, either way, somewhere in that time period, I co-authored it with Walt because after years and years of trying to tell these legitimate researchers, the people that were speaking about the case, that this woman is going to throw a monkey wrench into legitimate research and progress that we're making. And she's literally going to make it difficult for, for conferences, for everything. Uh, he finally uh, decided that he would write an article with me explaining how bad uh, some of her public claims were. Most of these researchers, especially the academic ones, have over the years said to me, look, it's not very important. It's uh, it, it, she's uh, she's a blip. She's going to go away. She's going to be like one of the many other people who have come and gone with these fantastic claims and have disappeared because their claims fall apart after a little bit. Somebody does the research, it goes away. I told them from 2002 on this was different. Joan Mellon said, I won't even dignify discussing, you know, her with a response in public or anything to me many times uh, from, you know, when she was writing a farewell to justice. Right. Okay. Uh, other people have said the same thing. So these are all off the air discussions, not stuff I had on my show. Right. I'll tell you one more off the air discussion. But anyway, over the years, I told them that this would become a problem, that she would subdivide the community. She's done it. Over the years, I told them that she would eventually have conferences of her own and take away from the legitimate possibilities of people getting together to do legitimate work. She's done it. Uh, it, it has gone that way. It just is what it is. If you're in the Judith Mary Baker camp, okay, I'll give you one last other fun fact from another author, Ernst Titovitz, yep, who writes uh, textbooks. <laughs> On medical research, uh, like the type of stuff that she claims that she might have been participating in regarding cancer weapons and all that. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, I, I cringe when any, even when I heard Maria bring it up on your show. I love Maria, but she's just flat wrong about this. And I love her to death. I call her mom. Well, I'll just say the only reason I bring it up is uh, it, it gets attributed to uh, to Dave McGowan's death, uh, whether that was the case or not, we're not sure. Well, but indeed, there may there may be the circumstance, and there is. Uh, like with, Jack, like, like with Jack Ruby is a good example. Well, maybe. maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe with Jack Ruby. Uh, but the thing is, and, and look, can't prove possibilities. It. I say that there is a distinct possibility that there is, you know, every kind of disease imaginable has been weaponized. Uh, and cancer has, was a great weapon for a little while. I think it wiped out a whole lot of people and intentionally. Yeah. So cancer weapon as a concept, yes, indeed. But when she talks about the particulars about how she may have accomplished that, I mean, Titovitz, who is somebody who would know how that sort of uh, work would be done, 
finds it laughable, her descriptions of what it is that she says she did, trained Oswald to do, etc. But I'll tell you what's not a laughing matter in her book. Um, if you are taking mental patients and unknowingly injecting them with these cancer weapons and they die, uh, you're a murderer. Yeah. Well, Judith Mary Baker makes that claim in the versions of her story that involve the cancer weapons. So there's no statute well, on murder. Well, to the best of my knowledge, right? right? So she's admittedly saying that she was involved in circumstances that ended up with mental patients against their will being injected. Yeah. You know, because there's a whole thing about that's another wacky thing, by the way, uh, about her story and, and where she tried to inject herself in and made a mistake. <laughs> Uh, you know, notice the pun there. She's injecting herself in. She continuously <laughs> right. attempted to inject herself into this story. Right. And always when there is some new thing that comes out, a new book, tell you what, she's well read as far as other people's work on the case because she has to keep constantly updating and integrating it into her own. Yeah. Uh, and she has. You can track yeah. and trace it over the years. Hold on. You can track and trace it over the years. Follow when she does an interview, then take a look at the books that were released and the films that were released around that time. Note that she has added new information and you can almost figure out exactly where it came from. It's a beautiful thing. But here's another fun one, just real fast. Not only does Tinovitz find her medical research claims really dubious, and I don't remember if I have that on the recording or he said it off air, but I'll re-release that interview I did too. Because I'm one of the few people that's interviewed Ernst Tinovitz, um, which I did for more than two hours uh, in 2014. Uh, anyway. And this is all available right now. Before you re-release it, it's actually available right now. If people want to get it, uh, seek it out at Ocelli.com, the member section, right? Well, yeah. Well, I do have some stuff at Ocelli.com under the member section, but I'm going to re-release this to everybody. I'm going to remind them of a whole bunch of stuff that I did earlier that, you know, people have asked me, can you do this or that? I've already done it. So I'm going to re-release it. Coming soon, folks. Uh, so coming soon. Anyway, here's here's another fun one, though. I love this one. Uh, vaguely, if you remember a story where Oswald makes a trip, and, and this was captured in The Men Who Killed Kennedy. I love that show because there's a ton of stuff on there that is, you know, provably a mistake now. Yes. But it's a great memorialization of a lot of things that people believed at the time. And if you take a look at when it was recorded and everything, it's a great encapsulation. Uh, there's the story that he goes to somebody's house and he gets a haircut and all these things he does in New Orleans. She ends up claiming that she was with him at a certain time when somebody believes that Oswald was in a car with Clay Shaw and possibly even, uh, well, anyway, Clay Shaw and him are in a car. They're in a big Cadillac. They go to some strange places in New Orleans. Those stories are partially true and were investigated by Jim Garrison, some of these things. So Garrison gets, uh, you know, somebody during a grand jury. And when it was made available, the grand jury testimony, and somebody pointed this out in a book, uh, part of the grand jury testimony, somebody says there was uh, this uh, woman who was there with Clay Shaw and Lee Harvey Oswald back when Garrison had the case, right? right? But the transcript had not been available to people. 
when it became available, she uh, she says, yeah, you know that woman that's in the car there? That's me. Right. I found that interesting because the person who was on the stand couldn't identify the woman. And look, we're talking about 1960, uh, you know, 7, 68, right? Yep. So the guy is dead. You can't ask him. Could you actually identify the woman? But it seemed like in the transcript he couldn't. That's what it was. So there were people that did interviews of other people that were present for books and things like that. One of them happened to be a kid who was there and was closer to the car in question. The kid also says he thinks he saw this, you know, Clay Shaw like figure and everything else. And there was an ugly woman there in the car. Uh, this guy, you know, more than 40 years later relates that, this woman was really ugly looking, right? <laughs> now, now I'm not judging Judy. As a matter of fact, I think Judy, when she was younger, not ugly. Right. Not ugly. So I'm thinking to myself, this is rather strange. So somebody contacted the guy who was a full-grown adult by now and asked him some details about this. Well, what ugly woman are we talking about? When you get down to it, it's David Ferry. It's not an ugly woman. It's David Fitness because there's a big blonde wig on and not a big one like Joe Pesci was wearing, you know, exaggerated in JFK, but there's a blonde wig on and really badly made eyebrows like Kate Dunn. Yeah. on this woman. The only explanation is that's probably David Ferry in my mind. Right. And the light color hair, I mean, I know that at certain points when people said, oh, they spotted, you know, Lee with a pregnant Marina, at certain points she said she did dress herself up to look like a pregnant Marina. I mean, th these are the various things that have come out over the years. What I'm saying is, though, go ahead and take her claims from step one. Examine the real world. Examine known facts. Go through them all yourself. And you're going to find that they fall apart page by page. And yet there are some people that want to pin the entire reality of the assassination to her story. She's now written a book about David Ferry, 500 pages. She spent a couple of months with him, allegedly doing all sorts of medical research for Mary Sherman. Right. Right. And all this other intrigue. Oh, hi, Dr. Mary, Dr. Ferry, Dr. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All of that nonsense. She claims to have called to be making jokes with Jack Ruby about, I had a dog <laughs> named Sparky. I've heard of her. Yeah, she brings up Ruby a bunch, right? Jack Ruby. He was there. Everybody was there. Yeah. Okay. If you just start to examine her claims and try to take a look at verifiable evidence that might give you indicators as to where certain people were, what they were doing at the time, what was allowable, acceptable, or possible in certain places. The story is completely unrealistic from top to bottom. Right. And that's it. The only thing that's verifiable is that she worked at Riley Coffee. And I'm telling you now, I don't even want to get into it detail by detail. I, one day, I mean, I almost don't want to give it the attention to sit there and go through page by page. Uh, although I've, I've had the, uh, the, the idea brought to me that we should bring the fabricated page, pick a page uh, game to the radio right. and have callers call in and pick a page number. You know, 
just pick a page number and let's see what we got. Wow. Because we literally did this for, I don't know, six months getting together once a week. And it, it only failed one time that, uh, that we did not, if you have a page with paragraphs on it, full written paragraphs, any page you got, you can't finish the page without finding something verifiably false. It's that simple. Uh, we only failed the one time, and I think it was because uh, the page selected. Because you can't select, you know, I don't think she has a uh, an index that has lots of evidence in it. But you can't use the index, obviously. You can't use the title page. Uh, but we failed the one time because it was uh, not a full page of text. We failed once. Uh, and we did it uh, more than 50 times. Like each time we got together once a week. We did it several times. So probably in the neighborhood of two, 300 attempts to pick a page randomly and not find a falsehood on it. Something that you can prove one way or another based on real world circumstances, other verifiable pieces of evidence or ridiculous claim just in general. Is <laughs> yep. So examine it objectively. And I'll tell you what. I actually have a couple of questions in my mind that that uh, that I would be satisfied to reverse my position on, Chris. Yep. If she could answer these couple of questions, and you know why? Because I've talked to Marina Oswald. I was actually going to ask you what her take was on Judith if she had one. Yeah, not not very friendly about it, and just pretty much just that's ridiculous. And you know, are you a serious person talking to me or not? Right. She she does not have very much patience for anybody who's a JFK guy anymore. Uh, I mean, but not, a, you know what? I haven't talked to her recently. She ran out of patience years ago. Yeah. Uh, last time I encountered her was sometime in the 90s. And dear God, I don't think she had any patience left for us. Right. Uh, but, but look, I have a couple of pieces of information from Marina that I don't believe have ever been published. I have a couple of pieces of information that come from the first woman that he asked to marry him in Russia, which was not Marina, by the well, in Minsk, which was not Marina, by the way. Right. I have a couple of pieces of information from another woman who knew him in school in the States. <coughs> and they all match together really nicely. And it seems to me as though if you were a woman who had anything resembling an intimate relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah. you should know this set of three or four things. Now, I've never spoken them aloud. I don't want to give her a chance to research them. Right. But I tell you what, if I was able to sit down with her and no recording, nothing, just give her these questions and she could even guess them correctly, I'd reverse my entire position on it. But I know for a fact she can't. It's not possible. Well, if anyone out there uh, know uh, is in uh, Judith's uh, circle, maybe uh, pass along that. That uh, it's not the first time I've ever said this. By the way, I've said it many times. And you know what? What am I? The troublemaker from New York who doesn't believe her? I think she called me one time. Uh, I'm not from New York. I was actually born in New Jersey. Yeah. It's cool. I don't expect you to get your facts straight, Judy. <laughs> but, you know, it's okay. Just the one guy from New York. I, I remember the, did you ever see when she went on the David Pac-Man show? You ever heard of that? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, that that thing is absolutely priceless. Well, wait a minute, Judy. What what kind of proof do you have of this? What do you mean proof? Everybody believes me. Just the one guy from New York doesn't. Right, and that's you. Yeah, that's me. If you're not from New York, <laughs> yeah. I'm not from New York. I lived in New York briefly. You doesn't know. count. Doesn't count. <laughs> You know, and I'm not going to, uh, you know, his grave and sitting there with balloons uh, on his birthday or whatever, which she was doing for a while. I mean, there is such weird stuff here. Uh, and yeah, she's I've, I've been to his grave and he's uh, there's actually a, a comedian or a performance artist that bought the, the headstone right next to him. <laughs> yeah, well, I, that's great. Um, but I, I, all I can say is no look, balloons is what I'm saying. I, I didn't see any balloons at that point. I ask anybody to look at these things as objectively as possible. We'd all love to believe many stories. And I would love to believe that she had this intimate knowledge of the guy because it's very difficult to get straight answers out of a lot of the people that were associated to him. There's a lot of views on, and we didn't even get into the two Oswalds thing, which has existed long before John Armstrong. Uh, you know, Dick Russell writes about the first guy who came up with the two Oswalds theory, uh, the professor there, uh, oh, I mean, I, when I was talking about it, I was talking about more of the book, uh, Harvey and Lee. I wasn't yeah. even thinking, because there were people that were impersonating him, like at the gun range. and you No, know. no, but Harvey and Lee is not the first book to, to posit right. there was more than one Oswald. I'm yeah. saying the, the multiple Oswald theory has been around a long time. Uh, there was a professor, I forget what his name was, but I think he literally wrote a book called The Two Oswalds. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Popkins, maybe, I think was his name. Uh, and Dick Russell writes a crazy story. If you ever read uh, on the trail of the assassins, yes. Uh, which is not the, uh, not, not the one it's a similar title to the Jim Garrison book, not the Jim Garrison book. Dick Russell has a book with a whole bunch of short stories. Uh, <laughs> is that the same book where he goes into the, uh, the LA attempt on JFK? With, it, uh, it, it might be, it's okay. the book on the front cover has, uh, the, uh, from the FBI reenactment, where you have the car and the crosshairs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's that one. I, I'm sure I have that on my shelf behind me too. It's a great book. And Popkins, I think is the first story in there. He's sending telegrams uh, to, to uh, president Ford at the time uh, claiming that there's going to be a robot that assassinates somebody or something. <laughs> um, wild stuff in that book. Uh, and it's really entertaining, but uh, he, but that guy Popkins he's writing about, is the first guy I know of to come up with the idea that there was more than one. Uh, and uh, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I certainly feel as though there was an intentional uh, screwing around with the records where they created multiple record tracks right. so that people couldn't follow this guy historically. Yeah. But the only as, thing that stuck out to me, Chuck, about yeah. that, and I'm not even saying it was another uh, Oswald, mm -hmm. is the arrest behind the. Uh, the movie theater while the Lee Harvey that we all take to be the real one was coming out the front. That was the only thing that has really intrigued me about that. And I'm not even saying it was another Oswald, but another suspect. Well, there's even better pieces than that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, Armstrong makes a lot of interesting arguments, uh, by, you know, by no means do I say he's got nothing, but to, to my mind, I think what you have is a whole lot of uh, the records are very much screwed up and mixed up. And I think intentionally so, yeah. uh, so that nobody could satisfactorily uh, attract the guy, right. um, you know, but the idea that there were two guys raised from childhood to be on separate. I, I've got a hard time with it. It's a wild one. Yeah. 
It's a wild one. But the idea that uh, there were people impersonating him, we know that there were people using his name. We yeah. know that, uh, you know, the FBI was aware of it. We know, you know, again. And that's a known tactic, right, in uh, espionage and in the spy world and everything, right? Yeah, scramble the records. I mean, make it so that you don't have a paper trail to follow. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, that's create actually a, create a legend, like a backstory, too. Yeah, create a legend, or you know, disap either disappearing or creating yeah. uh, entire sets of records to mislead people who are trying to investigate is a common tactic. Yes. Right. So, now, have you actually uh, met Judith in person? Judith Barry Baker in person? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. How do you think she came across knowing about the guy from New York? <laughs> Just uh, research circles. Well, what people showed me through screenshots, because she blocked me on social media a long time ago, <laughs> uh, is that on occasion things that happened on my show or things uh, that I was involved in discussions where I was a guest on a show or whatever had been brought to her attention. Okay. Uh, for sure. But people had to show me through screenshots. Cause like I said, I'm blocked, so I don't see her. Right. And uh, somebody who is allowed to see her would take a shot and show me okay. uh, things that she said on Facebook or, uh, there was also some private forum or something for a while where she was talking to her followers. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I think there's actually a me and Lee group on Facebook or, or something, right. uh, where she, you know, constantly puts out her declarations and tells you about the next product she offers. Uh, or where she's selling paintings of Lee or, um, you know, all that. So I, I think she's got a little, little fandom there on Facebook that uh, follows all of her stuff. And I've gotten screenshots from that. Okay. Well, we got that. We got the, the Judith of it all. Um, yeah. Before we wrap up, <laughs> I'd like to, if you are comfortable with it, I'd like you to maybe clear up uh, something for me and for those listening or watching. Uh oh, <laughs> the no, no, it's because uh, I kind of fell for it for a little while too until it was brought to my attention that there were other photos to um, back up this. What I'm about to say the the photos of supposedly of George H W Bush in Dealey Plaza standing in front of the book depository. Mm -hmm. Can you clear the air with that because you convinced me <laughs> actually that I was wrong. Well, there's a, there, there's a couple of things. Um, and, and I'm not the first person to do this. Uh, if you, there, there are many photographs of that time period in Dealey Plaza taken by many people. As we well know, there's a lot of uh, amateur photographers. And if you put together a collection of photos, you can begin to follow certain characters around. Like the so, Babushka lady too. That, that's well, there too. Babushka ladies. That's <laughs> there there's are more. there's at least four of them yeah. uh, that I can follow around and see where they were moving around at different times. If you can lay them on a timeline, you get it. Right. Uh, but this character that's supposed to be uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, you find the same guy in the same clothes at a different angle. It's mm -hmm. clearly not him. It's just that simple. Right. Um, and there are many problems like this. Uh, you know, for, for a long time, there was uh, the claim that Jack Ruby was photographed in Dealey Plaza. And some people still stand by that because the one photograph does indeed uh, look like it could be Jack Ruby in right. Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
other researchers have taken the films. See, that's another thing you can do. Yeah. Is that there are several films, and if you can capture a good shot of the very same character in a film and get a better look at him, you start to notice it's not the same guy. The guy that they think is is Jack Ruby, there's actually a piece of black and white footage of him uh, being uh, detained by the police temporarily because he appeared to be drunk. Um, and, uh, and that was shown, I think on, uh, on the history channel by, uh, by a very conservative researcher who said, look, you know what, if you cross-reference the films and the various photographs, you can begin to follow these characters around. Um, and he, he said what I knew, uh, but I was really, really happy to see it. And I think he did that in 2008 and I did it in, um, the, uh, around the time I found out about Judy, about 99, uh, because Robert Groden has provided uh, tons of great stuff in his books. But just acquiring the photographs over the years, you begin to notice, hey, look, that's the same person there. That's the same person there. Um, you know, and you're not always looking for just the, the blurry picture of James Tague, you know, uh, which, you know, again, he, he was photographed uh, exactly where he said he was. Yep. Even though people claim that he wasn't there for a long time. Well, for those that don't know, that was the gentleman that had uh, some a bullet fragment uh, cut his cheek open when he was near the underpass. In a technical sense, you could call him the third wounded man that day because he was actually wounded by something. Yeah. Uh, not not sure if it was pieces of cement or pieces of a bullet, uh, but something hit him in the face and caused him to bleed. I'm not saying he was you know really wounded bad or anything, but uh, but he was struck by something and he was over by the uh, underpass there. So, so there's that, and then in I don't want to say in your opinion, but based on the photographic uh, evidence. Who do you think is actually in the doorway? Is it Billy Lovelady or is it Lee Harvey Oswald in your opinion? <laughs> Without speculating, no. do you think it's Billy Lovelady? With the best copy of the Alkins photo I could ever get my hands on, yeah. uh, I would agree with Oliver Stone that it is Billy Lovelady Okay, in that doorway. The, the, the character that was thought to be Lee Harvey Oswald for several years is yeah. Billy Lovelady. As far as the other characters around there, that's a whole show. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to go into all that. And uh, am I into prayer, man, and this and that? And no, I'm not even touching oh, prayer. Yeah, that's, yeah. No. I mean, that's a whole other thing. And, I mean, uh, you know, one of my first appearances on Internet radio was, <laughs> oh, God, here, here we go with full disclosure. My name's Chuck, and I'm an alcoholic. No. Uh, my first appearance on Internet radio was actually with James Spetzer. And uh, he brought me on the real deal uh, yeah. as a guest and pulled up his copy of Alkins and started talking to me about how, you know, there's a black man who appears to be almost coming out of the wall because of the way it's so badly edited and altered, you know. I've seen that, yeah. Uh, and I'm like, dude, listen, where where is your picture from? You know, and his picture came from uh, the, the John McAdams website. Right. And I literally on the and, and I know that show's still floating around there somewhere on the internet of the real deal with Jim Fetzer with me as a guest. Um, yeah, on the Wayback Machine, folks, because I've listened to it before, but they buried that on the regular internet. Yeah. They buried it, but it's out there. And I literally say to him, "Well, listen, mine came from the uh, the archives of the Chicago Tribune, uh, and uh, that was the best copy that I could get, which is not first generation, but pretty damn good." 
and it was an eight by 10. And I put it under magnification while I was talking to him. Yeah. And, uh, and I said to him, the stuff that you're talking about is not present in a regular print photograph. It's just not there, Jim. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, and he got a little bit aggravated with me, but he gets aggravated with me many years later when I brought him on as a guest in 2015 on my JFK special. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's right. entertaining. Uh, I, I believe the big phrase he was screaming at me and Carmine Savastano is that we both have our heads up our asses. That's right. Uh, I wanted to get that as a ringtone at some point. That would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, ha have I bored everybody to death yet? Maybe. Not, not at all. Not at all. Well, before we... Uh, before we go, can you uh, can you tell anybody out there uh, how they can contact you if you want to be contacted and how they can support your work and your website and the network in general and any other closing thoughts and uh, reference material that you want other people to, to check out maybe? Well, I, I say go and get the best evidence you can when you're examining any aspect of any case, okay? Uh, don't rely on a single source. Don't rely on anybody's hearsay. Please always, always examine and verify and try to uh, verify from as many different legitimate sources as you can. And by legitimate, I don't necessarily always mean official, but uh, official sources are useful. They're not all fabrications. Everything in the world is not faked, but uh, <laughs> some things are. Yeah, that's important too. You know, anyway, all that aside, uh, Ocelli.com, you go there and you find out that I do a show called The Ocelli Effect. Now, it's supposed to be five days a week, but I've been peeling back on that a bit. Uh, I still do it several times a week, and I also produce other shows, including the Jack Blood 360 show on Thursdays. Uh, on Sunday nights, uh, Aaron Franz, The Age of Transitions, Uncle the Podcast, and starting on February 6th, Chris Graves, who I already produced for Get Mad with Chris Graves. Uh, yeah, he's going to go Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Ocelli.com live. Now, these are the live performances, and we got 24-7 replays. You can get the podcast pretty much anywhere where audio podcasts are available. So that's that. Um, you can reach out to me on the website. Talk to me there. I'm also on Twitter. Facebook, I don't answer so quickly, but I'm there. How can they support you, uh, your efforts in your network um, in a financial kind of way? Uh, we have a donate button and we're going to be offering for every single one of the guys who does a show. Uh, if you want to support their show directly, you can support the network and their show in that way. If you want to buy an ad, if you don't, you can just make a donation at Ocelli.com. And I encourage you to donate to these guys directly. Help us all. Uh, continue to be independent and not have to take corporate money. I'd rather be listener supported. I know you would too, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. I don't, I don't like the idea of being, uh, you know, within reason, obviously without you know uh, it, trying to incite violence. Uh, I don't think that people should be suppressed in their thoughts and their ideas. Um, do you have any upcoming uh, appearances you'd like to add, or maybe you don't? No, no, not a problem. Uh, the only, you know, not too many people book me uh, as guests on their shows anymore. They used to, they don't so much anymore, but I'm available for that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, if you got a podcast or a web channel or whatever it is, you call it at this point, uh, more than happy to come and speak on various subjects. 
Uh, if, if I have knowledge on them, absolutely. And if not, maybe I have a friend I can suggest to you. But I'll be on uh, Sam Tripoli's tinfoil hat. Uh, I'm supposed to be recording it this Monday. So if all goes well, I'll be on the uh, the tinfoil hat show, Sam Tripoli's thing. And uh, that's the only upcoming appearance I know about, except that I also do Hell in High Water twice a month with Maria Heller. I'm very proud to do so and have for several years. And you have several uh, projects uh, in your members only section coming up too, right? Right. We have uh, special audiobooks uh, which are being recorded and are being distributed while in prog you know, while they're being produced. Uh, we have the uh, just the general membership at Ocelli.com, which gives you extra podcasts outside of the stuff we put out for free. Uh, you know, you can subscribe to that and a new project with the Greek coming up, which is uh, a very separate and odd thing. <laughs> I have no idea what it's going to be altogether. So that's an exciting uh, part, right? That's exciting. Various stuff. ways, various <laughs> ways, all kinds of exciting stuff, and hoping to do some more video and bit really shoot, right in Rockfin, possibly. A bit shoot Rockfin. Uh, you know, look, hoping to do some more video on some platforms outside of YouTube because I don't have that no more. Yeah. But um, you know, and I'm I'm looking really forward to seeing uh, where where the Chris Graves media universe goes. So <laughs> yeah, support him, share, tell friends about yeah. Chris Graves. And you have a Patreon uh, too, as well. Ah, whatever. Look, <laughs> we covered all bases, right? <laughs> I know. I appreciate it, but it's not a big hawking section. Look, I I appreciate any any support I get. Share the shows. Tell a friend. Whatever my show, Chris's show, Jack Blood's show, Aaron Franz show, all the stuff I work on, and all of our friends. You know what? Six over at New Prisoners. Yeah. Uh, the lawyer's name just slipped my mind. What's her name over there? Oh, Lisa Belanger. Yeah, I, I'm Lisa on there. Bellinger. Yeah, Lisa Bellinger. Oh, you know, those guys at New Prisoners. Great yeah, stuff. Yeah, Knights of the Storm. They're big fans of you as well, Chuck. Uh, whether and, they are they or they're not. They're no, they the are. They are. Yeah. And they want you on and vice hey, versa. Love so to hear it. Call in to Chuck's show on Fridays, too, because it's a whole big discussion. It's a call-in show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Live call-ins. We do all kinds of stuff over there. It's the fun stuff. And uh, yeah. And I chat think, room. Participate. Participate. Chat room, yeah. Anyway, look, support independent media in general yes. because it is the only thing that's going to support your right. Ready? Your right to hear actual truth, information. It's the only thing that actually supports you. You need to support it if it's delivering. So do it. That's it. Perfect. Mr. Chuck Ocelli, everybody. And uh, until we meet again, here we go.